If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them with me this morning once again to Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, We're in the same passage we've been in for the last several weeks. Uh, You probably know it partly by heart at least. Uh, If you're visiting with us this morning, a few weeks ago we began a series of Advent meditations on Isaiah 9, a familiar passage in the church if you grew up in the church. There are less sermons, more Advent meditations, Christological reflections. I don't know what the difference is. It's just kind of a disclaimer that I like to give in case I screw up in any way. I can blame it on that. No, this has been good truth. I know I said that is because we're not picking apart a big text. We're kind of just zooming in with a microscope on just a couple words, and uh, that has its own flavor to it because we're doing more of pulling in the rest of the Bible into those two words and less of unpacking what is found in the text. So that's why I said that. But this has been a great series for me to work through. It's been good for my heart. I I trust it's been good for your heart as well as we've talked about this one promised in this passage, the one promised hundreds of years before he would even walk the earth. It's pretty amazing. This child born to us. And this child, as we began last week in earnest, this child has been given four titles. Now, these are not titles that people called him on the street like, hey, wonderful counselor, how you doing? No, these are aspects of his nature that he will and has displayed in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. And and while Isaiah penned these words, no doubt that Isaiah penned these words, It was ultimately the Holy Spirit who authored these words. I don't think Isaiah really understood what he was writing. There's no way he could really unpack the depth anyway. I mean, we can't even unpack the depth of these titles, of these words. There's no way that Isaiah could unpack it either or put specific feet on it like we can in the life of Jesus. And so we want to move on to the second title today, and uh, I'm going to read the same text that I've read all these weeks, the first two verses of Isaiah 9, and then jump down to verses 6 and 7. So if you're willing and able, I'd encourage you to stand with me this morning for the reading of God's Word, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, and then jumping down to verses 6 and 7. The prophet says this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shown. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Let's jump right in this morning. 
Three truths that I'd like us to be encouraged by as we set our gaze for a few minutes on this child born to us. The first one is this. Jesus is the mighty God worthy of your worship. Jesus is the mighty God worthy of your worship. Has anyone ever asked you who your hero is? If so, how did you respond when someone asked that question? Heroes are people that we look up to, people that we aspire to be, maybe. Maybe they've helped us personally, or or maybe we've just idolized them from afar. Maybe it was a mother or a father. Maybe it was a teacher or a coach. Maybe it was a famous figure of history. No matter who popped into your mind, they pale in comparison to the child born to us. Maybe that goes without saying. Right? We've already talked about how the Jews are wrong in ascribing this prophecy to Hezekiah. This is not Hezekiah. This is not any mere man. This is Jesus of Nazareth. And Isaiah, in his description of this child to be born, puts together two words. The word El and the word Gibor. Those are Hebrew words. The word El is simply the word meaning God. The word Gibor, translated here as mighty in your translations, literally means hero. In other words, this child is a hero whose chief characteristic is that he is God. God with us. And so if Isaiah is to be believed, then he is saying that the birth of this child is the God of the universe. The one who is extolled in Deuteronomy 10.17 as the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. That God, who the people of Israel had known for generations upon generations, is coming, Isaiah says, and has come from our perspective to earth. Now the first question that we might ask ourselves is, is that a good thing? Is that a good thing that the mighty God is coming to earth? I mean, after all, when when God invaded the earth in times past, it had been terrifying, right? The thunder and lightning at Mount Sinai, the pillar of fire in the wilderness, the burning presence in the holy of holies, in the tabernacle, and then in the temple. These displays that the people of God would have known well. They are indeed mighty when we think about the word mighty, but God, in this description, comes not to us in terrifying pageantry, but in a different kind of might, a might of meekness and humility. Jesus possessed it all. He is the mighty God worthy of your worship. He is the uncreated, the independent, the internal and unchangeable one. All the work of creation is His. All the work of providence is His. All of the work of upholding the universe every second of every day by the word of His power is His. Jesus of Nazareth. This mighty God chose to become a baby boy. 
And I think I've read this quote almost every Advent, but every Advent I return to it because it's so good. It's from the theologian John Murray who wrote this, the infinite became finite. The eternal entered time and became subject to it. The invisible became visible. The immutable, that is the unchangeable, became mutable. The creator became created. The sustainer of all became dependent. The almighty became weak. God became man. And of course, that's the the wonderful truth that we have been thinking about and reflecting upon. It's the core truth of this season of Advent, that God came to earth. But what I want us to think about this morning in regards to this title, Mighty God, is that if we acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth is the mighty God, then that actually demands something from us, doesn't it? I mean, certainly the early church was littered with Christological controversies of those who said that Jesus wasn't God, he was a mere man, or he he was God, he wasn't a man. There's all sorts of Christological controversies that we could go through. But we have our own Christological controversies of today. And it's simply the air that we breathe. The culture around us that says, yeah, that Jesus guy, he was a great guy. He was a good teacher, but he wasn't God. He wasn't the mighty God. You see, because if Jesus is not God, then his word is negotiable. We can take it or leave it. We can pick and choose what we like, which is exactly what our hearts at their very core want to do and what our culture loves doing. We'll talk more in a couple weeks about his rule, but suffice it to say, Jesus is to be believed, worshipped, and obeyed because he is the mighty God. He's the heroic God. And I think that word hero is helpful for us because he's also a God to be idolized and to be emulated like no other. Right? That's my prayer. Make me more like Jesus. That's the hero that I want to be like. Jesus is the mighty God. But let's press in a little to that might, asking what that might might mean for us. And there are lots of directions that we could have gone in this morning. That's the freedom of unpacking just two words or, or one phrase, one title. But let me suggest two this morning. And it moves us to our second point. Not only is Jesus the mighty God worthy of your worship, but Jesus is mightier than your sin. Let's just put this real practically in our lives. Jesus is mightier than your sin. Every year in the Hitchcock house, we like to re-watch, binge-watch movie series, whether it be The Star Wars, whether it be the Narnia movies, the Bourne movies, Mission Impossible. Last year, I think... I could be wrong on this, but last year I think it was the Lord of the Rings. Remember Gollum from the Lord of the Rings? You Lord of the Rings fans know Gollum who was once Smeagol, a kind-hearted hobbit who changed when this ring came into his life, right? 
This ring took its grip on him and it isolated him from others and it marred the image of what he once was. It prolonged his life and his suffering and yet he was helpless against its power over him. In a way, Smeagol's plight is ours. It's a picture of our plight in some way, of our need. And the New Testament itself gives us another picture of such a man. And I want to spend just a few minutes in another passage of Scripture this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It's not going to be on the screen. So if you don't have your Bible, you can just listen to me. But I want to put this title, Mighty God, to the test. Jesus is mightier than our sin. Let's put it to the test. I want to unpack this a bit. Mark chapter 5. It's a familiar story to some of you. Mark chapter 5, let me just read it real quickly, verses 1 through 15. This is when Jesus was on earth. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces And no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. A great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering 2,000, rushed down a steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it to the city, and people came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man who had once had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So here we have this man whose image is marred by evil. He is in bondage. He is plagued by an evil that's intent on destroying him. And in this confrontation, like others like it, we could have gone to a number of places, Jesus reminds us, among other things, of his power over the darkness. He said at the beginning of his ministry in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Our hope this morning and this promise that the child born to us is a mighty God comes as we embrace the fact that we, like this man, are in need of deliverance. Right? Most importantly, like this man who lived among the dead, we need to recognize that we are spiritually dead ourselves. We need the voice of Jesus, the mighty God, the one who spoke the world into being to again breathe life into us. 
But beyond that, we acknowledge that even we who have been made His children, who know and love Him, who are new creations, we are gripped by sin and darkness. And it may not be as we see here, certainly not as we see here, but it's no less real, it's no less destructive. The Apostle Paul addressed this kind of thing to the church at Corinth. And speaking of an unforgiving spirit, anyone ever struggle with that? Yeah. He says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And speaking of sexual desire, in 1 Corinthians 7, he writes to married couples, come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Broken relationships, reoccurring sin, plagued by the darkness of depression, we are all in the process of freeing ourselves into the life that Jesus came to bring us. And here's the thing. Here's the reminder this morning. You're not alone because you have a hero that fights for you. You have a hero who is mightier than your sin. There is none who are too far gone. There is none who are out of His reach. Mighty Jesus came to deliver when no one else can. And that brings us to the last truth I want us to think about for a moment. Not only is Jesus mightier than our sin, but Jesus is mightier than your enemy. When Jesus was on earth, his presence stirred up the hornet's nest in the spiritual realms. We see that in the Gospels. We don't see that kind of thing every day here in Edmonds, Washington, do we? from a wild sea that he calmed, remember that? May very well have been wrought by a demonic presence to now a wild man on the shore who is clearly enslaved by some kind of spiritual force. Dark powers, when Jesus was on earth, are on the offensive. But unlike me, Jesus stands his ground. He's the mighty God. Back to that story that we were just talking about. Here, here's this crazy, wild, naked man. Luke adds that little tidbit of information. I mean, this is quite the scene. He comes barreling at Jesus as Jesus steps out of this boat, right? And if I'm a disciple, if I'm standing there, I'm on my knees picking up a rock as this guy comes hauling at us, right? And Jesus just stands there. Now, we don't know whether this man was coming for a fight we don't know if this is the man running for help or if this the demon inside of him eager for confrontation. We don't exactly know. Either way, Jesus stands his ground. And what happens? Bam! They fall before him. They fall before him. Mark uses the same word that Matthew uses to describe the worship of the wise men falling before Jesus as they come to bear their gifts to him. And the demon inside says that he's, he's many. 
He's not just one. He's many. You're outnumbered, Jesus, and Jesus is unconcerned because he knows who he is. He knows what he came to do. He came to destroy the work of the devil. And in this very kind of prophetic picture, he sends the demons inside of this man into a flock of pigs, not a flock, a herd of pigs. And and where do the pigs go? They go into the symbol of darkness in that day, the sea, a shadow of what is to come in Revelation 20 when the devil himself will be plunged into the lake of fire forever. So what's the point? Brothers and sisters, the simple point is that the powers of darkness are real. That the grip of evil is real. That our enemy is real. And I've said this in many different ways in many different contexts. But it seems to me when we're confronted with the fact that our God is a mighty God, mightier than our sin, we need to be reminded that he's mightier than our enemy. And much of this may be hidden from view. But we have to confess because the scriptures teach us that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he is smarter and older than you are. And you don't have to be a crazed man to be someone who is susceptible to his lies. When we look at our culture, he's feeding our world lies, he's perverting our cultural conscience, he's disrupting circumstances all around us, enslaving people in sin, in addiction, in self-destruction, inciting evil and violence, absolutely. But then even personally, just thinking about you, perhaps he's helping you navel-gaze. You're fixated on your sin. You're convinced that you're not his child. You're convinced that you're not worth it. Maybe he's helping you hide and fuel an addiction. Jesus' title, Mighty God, and the fact that he is mightier than our sin and mightier than our enemy reminds us that Jesus came to make you new. That he knows you. It encourages you to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so my hope is that you'll once again, through this title, through this point, have your eyes opened and discerning in regards to his work. But one of the things I don't want you to do is despair. Because that's not the point of this passage. That's not the point of this title. We who have been made new, made alive through the forgiveness of sins, those sins which nailed Jesus to the cross, Colossians 2.15 says, He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. 1 John 1.8, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So my encouragement to you this morning is to believe the gospel, to believe that if God is for you, who can be against you? (laughs) No one. Jesus is mightier than your enemy. So rejoice, worship, rest. Rest in the promised one. Rest in Jesus, the heroic God, the one who is God, the one who is mighty, mightier than your sin, mightier than your enemy. We absolutely need this child. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, I thank you this morning for these two profound words, mighty God. And we thank you that you have proven yourself to be a God who is not simply mighty from a distance, but you are the God who has showed your might in incredibly vulnerable ways. And yet ways that meet us in our weakness, ways that meet us in our humanity. Father, I pray that your people would go from this place encouraged to discern the lies that they've been believing, lies that have kept them away from you, lies that have kept them enslaved to sin, and that they would trust and cry out to and rest in the one who is the mighty God. Oh, Father, impress this upon our hearts. We pray. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.